You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Offering this um, lecture in um, collaboration with the Pratt Library and part of their Writers Live um, program. So it's, um, I don't get to introduce our speaker, that's um, for Kurt Smoke, and I get to introduce Kurt Smoke, but the number of you that spoke to him as you came into the room um, helps me know that I don't really need to introduce him to you. You know who he is, but there are some pertinent pieces of information for tonight's. Um, program that I think you need to know, and that is, well, everybody knows that he went to City College, right? That's a, that's a known. But he's class of 71 at Yale, and more importantly, he's in Davenport College, and that means something to some of you, right? Um, and um, the other piece that's, that's um, important to me is that I have skin in this game because not only my wife was in Davenport College, I was in Ezra Stiles College, but much uh, more importantly, my daughter is in Benjamin Franklin College right now. So I've got a woman at Yale right this minute. So, but um, it's my honor um, to introduce um, to you, um, I'll just tell you his current role as the president of the University of Baltimore is Kurt Schmoke. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure to uh, be here once, uh, once again, and particularly an honor for me to introduce this uh, daughter of Baltimore who has written a wonderful, a wonderful book entitled Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant. This uh, book, has been reviewed, and I was uh, just told, Ellie Carey told me it was reviewed again in the uh, New York Times uh, uh, recently. Uh, You may think that the book is just fairly narrowly focused on one institution, but in fact, it looks at the uh, evolution of university co-education and also in the women's rights uh, movement uh, as a general uh, matter. Uh, Yale, as, as we know, is, is kind of a, an institution that was a pillar of the uh, establishment. Uh, in the 1960s, a lot of uh, change was going on, not only at uh, the, the country generally, but at, at Yale specifically. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who was in the class of 1957 uh, at Yale told me that uh, if you mentioned the word diversity then, that what diversity meant at Yale in 1950s uh, was a white male from a public school in the Midwest. Uh, but uh, in the 1960s, things uh, started uh, to change uh, slowly but, but surely. A number of African American students and students of color uh, were introduced, but on campus, if there was a woman, Uh, who was a student. It was a graduate student only. Yale was uh, resistant to having um, co-education at the undergraduate uh, level. Similarly, uh, just about every other uh, school uh, within the Ivy League. So a decision was made, and Ann will give you uh, the background on on that decision, but it was a struggle, a struggle uh, that occurred when uh, Yale decided to admit women um, as undergraduates and a a group of just less, short of 600 women came on campus in 1969. They symbolized a, a real uh, pioneers. They were. They had to struggle. Uh, they overcame a lot of odds. They were successful both as students at Yale and in uh, their careers. But they really symbolized all that was going on in the movement for uh, equality of rights for for women. So I. It was really a, a pleasure for me to get to uh, know Anne. She is a, a class of 1981 at Yale. Uh, a Rhodes scholar and then uh, became uh, obtained her PhD from the University of Massachusetts so she's a, a teacher a researcher educator uh, and also uh, she happens to be somebody that uh, Baltimore is really proud of so ladies and gentlemen I introduce you to Dr. Ann Perkins Thank you, Kurt. 
Can you all hear me okay? My mom was very nervous about the mic system, so I think it's working. So it is wonderful to be here in Baltimore, the city where I grew up, the city where my mom and my sister and some of my oldest and dearest friends still live. Um, I've been traveling all over the country for almost two months now to talk about the story of Yale Needs Women. North Carolina, Colorado, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut. And I've met some wonderful people, but my travels have not been without a few bumps. I was in Madison, Connecticut last week talking at a wonderful independent bookstore there, and I was coming right to the end of my talk, right to the final wonderful story when all the power in the bookstore went out. I was standing there in the pitch dark, and one of the bookstore employees reported, I guess helpfully, that all of the power in Madison, Connecticut on Main Street was out. One of the members of the audience started shining her iPhone flashlight in my face, and so I asked the obvious question, do you all just want to go home now, or should I tell one last story? Oh, tell a story, they said. So I finished my talk in Madison, Connecticut, looking out on an audience I could no longer see delivering a story in the pitch dark. So hopefully we will be spared such drama tonight, although you might want to check where the exits are, uh, just in case. Um, a special thank you before I start to Tracy Diamond of the Enoch Pratt Library, the wonderful Reverend David uh, Ware, and to the indefatigable Mary DeKuyper for introducing me to them. I, it's really great to be here. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to explore together the moment in our nation's history when America's top colleges, when Yale and its peers, finally admitted their first women students. And for those of you who are unsure when that was, it was just 50 years ago, 1969. Um, but before I uh, get into that, I do want to do something a little unusual, which is do a little bit more introduction to the man who just introduced me. Because at Yale in this era, a lot of the change occurs because of the activism of women, but also because of the men who stand up as allies to women. And Kurt Schmoke was one of those men. In the year before co-education begins, Yale sort of scurries to get ready to turn from an all-male school to a co-ed one by appointing a planning committee on co-education. There were two students on that committee. One of them was sophomore Kurt Schmoke. And in the first year of co-education, a new co-education committee arises, which is tasked with assessing, how's Yale doing with these first women students? And that committee had the audacity to publicly challenge two of the givens about women at Yale, that women would form a small minority of the student body, and that they would be almost absent entirely on Yale's faculty. There were two students on that committee, and one of them was Kurt Schmoke. And then lastly, in the fall of 1969, two students at Yale, one of the first women undergraduates, a woman named Mary Pearl, and another student, Kurt Schmoke, observed that the, Yale, the women who work in Yale's dining halls, who are primarily African-American women from the surrounding New Haven community, have no daycare into which to place their young children while they're working at Yale. And Kurt and Mary Pearl decide to do something about this. In 1971, the Calvin Hill Daycare Center opens in New Haven to serve the families of Yale's union workers at a time when high-quality daycare is a rarity throughout this country, and the Calvin Hill Daycare Center continues to operate today in New Haven, serving the families of Yale students, staff, and employees with a sliding scale so that no one is turned away because of inability to pay. So thank you, Kurt, for all you've done for women at Yale. So Baltimore's history thus intertwines somewhat with this history of the first women at Yale, in part through the activism of Kurt Schmoke, in part because 17 of those first women students are from Maryland, in part because of the imprint that Yale continues to place on the national leadership. Four of the current Supreme Court justices went to Yale. Uh, and there's a guy named John Bolton who was at Yale during these early years of co-education. 
Uh, but this story is about more than Yale. This is a story about the women who go first. The women who go first, these women who speak out, I believe help shape a better world for all of us, but all too often their stories are lost. It's long overdue time that we reclaim them. So let me give you a quick game plan of the evening. I'm going to talk for the next 25, 30 minutes. I want to start by giving you a sense of the context into which those first women arrive, both at Yale and beyond. And then I'm going to tell three stories about change, stories that start to get at this question, how does change towards greater equality happen and what stands in its way? At that point, I'll pause and give you all a chance to ask some questions. There'll be a mic up here, so think of some good ones. And then I'll close with one final story, during which hopefully the power will not go out. So, sound okay? So let's begin. So Yale Needs Women, as I told you, was the story of the first women undergraduates at Yale. They arrived in 1969 to an institution that had been all-male for the previous 268 years. It was the oldest all-men's club in the country. Yale had only admitted them reluctantly. They were outnumbered by their male classmates, seven to one. But of the dozens of these women I interviewed to write this book, I was struck again and again by their grit, their perseverance, and their humility. This is a story of change, change that happens and change that does not. And it's a story of power, power held in all the traditional ways and power created outside such boundaries. Above all, this is a story of a group of young women and how they found their way during those tumultuous early years of coeducation at Yale. So let's turn back to September 1969 when those first women students arrive. And I sometimes think that music and images can help take us back to an era quicker than words. So we're going to turn the clock back 50 years by having you watch a short two-minute video. It combines clips from two popular songs of the time. So be listening to see if you can name the tunes afterwards. I'll quiz you. Um, with images from Yale in this era. And I want to cue you to the first two images in particular. The first one is a replica of a protest poster that was papered all over the Yale campus in September 1968 by one of the Yale's male students who was an activist, um, advocate of coeducation. And while the poster itself has been lost to time, the photo of his sister that's in the poster is the actual photo that was used. And then the second will show you a picture of uh, Yale President Kingman Brewster, president of Yale at this time, and the five women whose stories are at the center of my book. Okay? So, Tracy, can you have that go?
my son's college roommate, who is a total sweetheart, put that together for me. Um, so the first song, Respect. Aretha Franklin is the first woman inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Respect, which she released in 1967, was her first number one hit. And the second song, anybody recognize that? A little less familiar? Ball of Confusion, Temptations, released in 1970. And I love that title, because I think for many, Ball of Confusion captures what it felt like to be a college student in 1969 or 1970. The world was churning. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated the year before. The Black Power Movement was changing how Americans saw race. The Stonewall Riots had just laid bare the discrimination felt by gay men and women. And the Vietnam War, of course, was raging, as was the protest against it. And it's into that moment that the first women of Yale enter college. The women's movement had barely begun back then, so let me give you just a few facts to situate you. Just 7% of U.S. doctors were women. Just 3% of U.S. lawyers. Just 2% of the members of Congress. In the fall of 1969, the word sexism was so new that when Time Magazine put it in an article, it put sexism in quotation marks. No one had ever heard of that before. Discrimination against women, college students, faculty, and administrators was perfectly legal. None of the protections we have now were yet in place. Even the 14th Amendment, with its promise of equal protection under the law, was still thought to apply only to men. And if you think Yale was the only college turning women away at this point, think again. The list of colleges where women were not welcome to apply in this country before 1969, in fact, reads like an academic who's who. Seven of the eight Ivy League schools, including Harvard, Penn, Princeton, and of course Yale, turned women away. So did many of the engineering schools, Caltech, Lafayette, Lehigh, and dozens of others of the nation's top schools, Johns Hopkins, the Naval Academy, Duke. Even two state universities, UVA and Rutgers, were still all male at this time. For many, it seemed normal that there was this group of colleges that only men could attend. And thus, when Yale made its surprise announcement that it was going co-ed, the news was so shocking that the New York Times played it on the front page. Ten months later, those first women students arrived. So who were they? The New York Times called them superwomen, but most of them were just teenagers. They came from all over the country, from Los Angeles, Miami, Houston, Cleveland, Baltimore, Bethesda, Chevy Chase. Some were wealthy with names you might recognize, Pillsbury, Firestone, Beinecke, but others had to patch together their tuition through financial aid jobs and summer work. Most of them were white, but 40 of those first women at Yale were African-American, 13 were Asian-American, just three were Latina. They were smart, and they were tough. That's how Yale picked them that first year. Girls who were athletes, girls who had four brothers, or preferably five, girls who had traveled all over the country or endured a particular hardship, that's who Yale was picking for that first group of women. I interviewed one of the two administrators who chose that first class of women at Yale, and I'll never forget what he told me. There was no point in taking a timid woman and putting her in that environment because it could crush you. He knew what he was talking about. Yale might have called itself co-ed, but it was just 13% women that first year. And here's what you need to know. That gender imbalance did not happen naturally but because Yale put in place a gender quota that gave preference to male applicants. Yale saw its job as producing national leaders, a thousand male leaders a year, to be exact. And because men are leaders and women are not, or so Yale reasoned, Yale wanted to spend as few of its limited spots on women as possible. And so for those first four years of coeducation, Yale limited the number of women in each entering class to 230 while reserving 1,025 spots for men, those 1,000 male leaders plus a cushion of 25 extra in case someone in the admissions office made a mistake or two. 
The fight to overturn that gender quota at Yale became one of the defining battles of those early years of coeducation. But in the meantime, those first women learned what it was like to be the only girl in the room. As one of them wrote, when I raised my hand to speak in class, the guys turned to stare as if the furniture itself had offered an opinion. Yale Meets Women is based on five years of research in the Yale archives and over 80 oral histories. But when I sat down to write it, I had one particular goal in mind. I wanted to write a book that my daughter Lily would actually want to read. And so what I did was decide to write this book through weaving together the stories of five of those first women undergraduates. I wanted Lily, I wanted others who read this book, to come to know and care about them as I had. I wanted Lily, I wanted you, to be moved by the power of their stories. I think that is the power of history, this power of stories, stories that inspire us, stories that change us, stories that can also almost shift where we see the world as if the chair we'd been sitting in had been moved to a different location and suddenly we can see what we hadn't. Um, before. I promise you I'd tell you three stories, and the first one is about one of these five women whom I follow, a girl named Laurie Mifflin, who grew up not too far from here, just outside of Philadelphia, in a neighborhood that made clear its aspirations for its youth by the name of its streets, Harvard Avenue, Yale Avenue, North and South Princeton Avenue. I'm going to read you a short passage um, from the book. At the moment when Laurie understands that being one of those first women at Yale is going to be a bit more of a challenge than she thought. And I should tell you, Laurie's an athlete. Philadelphia is a sports-crazy city, but Laurie um, has been an athlete pretty much her whole life. Laurie Mifflin was ready to play field hockey. She had played every autumn since she was 11. Many of the girls in her high school played, too. The streets of Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, may have been named for colleges that only men could attend, but the playing fields were filled each fall with girls wielding hockey sticks, smacking the ball down the field as hard as they could. Being a member of a team gives you confidence and power, said Constance Appleby, who introduced field hockey to the United States. Laurie had brought her shin guards and a bag of balls to Yale along with her hockey stick. She just needed to figure out how to sign up for the team. Yale's orientation week schedule listed introductory meetings for a half dozen men's sports. Yale had 17 male varsity sports that year. But it made no mention of field hockey, so after saying goodbye to her parents, Laurie set off for the other side of campus where the athletic office was. Where do I sign up for field hockey? She asked the man behind the desk. He looked confused. There were no sign-ups, he told her. There was no team. There was also no women's soccer team, no women's basketball, and no women's tennis or swim team or crew. Yale was not offering any competitive sports for women. Athletic girls did have a few options to choose from. Laurie could take classes in modern dance, ballet, and something called women's exercise, (laughs) a watered-down version of the fitness training offered to men. She could help exercise the polo ponies, although girls could not join the team, and she could be a cheerleader. Laurie Mifflin was not interested in cheerleading or any of the other choices Yale was offering to women. She wanted to play field hockey, just like she had ever since she was 11. Damn it, she thought, I'm not going to let them stop me. And I love what comes next. So that first year, Laurie and another woman she'd met who played field hockey organized sort of makeshift practices on Yale's old campus, which is a big quadrangle with oak trees with roots that trip them up when they're chasing after the ball. Um, And by that summer, she realizes Yale is still not going to do anything to provide sports for its women, so she decides to do it herself. And over that summer, she sends letters to half a dozen women's colleges in the area announcing that Yale now has a women's field hockey team and asking them if they would like to play. (laughs) Yale has no idea this is going on. 
And so in the September, she comes back to the man in the athletic office, and she says, the field hockey team has a schedule now. We're playing Connecticut College, Trinity College, and she goes down the list. Will you at least give us a field to practice on? And that's how the field hockey team first gets a, a practice field at Yale, and the battle goes on from there. Uh, story number two, so Laurie comes to Yale as a freshman, as do about a third of those first women students, but the other two-thirds come into Yale as transfers that uh, first year, sophomores and juniors who'd not been allowed to apply to Yale when they were in high school because it was still all men. And the next story is about Shirley Daniels, who comes to Yale as a sophomore, um, Shirley's dad was in the Army, so when she was a child, they moved around to different Army bases, and she went to the elementary schools there. She was often one of the only black kids in the school. But when she's 12, her dad retired from the Army, and the family moved to Roxbury, which is the heart of black Boston. And Shirley went to Hyde Park High School, which is not a particularly good high school. It's actually closed since then. But she was smart, and she was tough. And after a year at Simmons College, she's accepted to Yale. Now, I often think of Yale at this time like this big, fabulous mansion. And for decades, for centuries, actually, the women had been outside on the sidewalk watching as the men were able to go in and out the front door. And finally, in 1969, that door opens to women. And then they look around and realize they're just standing in the entry hall. And a lot of the doors still to what makes Yale, Yale, are still closed to them. They can't play sports, as I said. They can't sing in any of Yale's most elite singing groups who travel the world singing on behalf of Yale. They can't march in the marching band. They can't join Yale's famous secret societies. But there are a couple of these doors that are open to them. Um, the Yale Dramatic Association is particularly welcoming to women because a number of decades before that, um, Yale noticed that the men had to be playing women's roles and being concerned at that point about the impression that might leave of homosexuality, it forbid men from playing women's roles at Yale. And so the Dramatic Association brings in the wives of Yale women uh, to, to play the women's parts, and so it's comfortable with women by the time those uh, co-education begins. But one of the other groups where women are welcomed in is the Black Student Alliance at Yale, the BSAY. And at the end of the very first semester, the BSAY elects women to two of its highest positions. Shirley Jackson, who is now a congresswoman from uh, Houston, uh, is elected to the position of treasurer. And Shirley Daniels, whom this story is about, is elected to run the BSAY's largest committee, which is in charge of recruiting black students to Yale and then supporting them academically once they get there. She works with the admissions office and top Yale administrators in this job. She manages a budget of $10,000 as a college sophomore, worth about $60,000 today. But the BSAY is not perfect. None of the issues of black women are on its agenda when those first women arrive. And so it's the black women students who have to start to work on those themselves. And one of the most pressing issues for Yale women in this first year of co-education in particular is the immense social pressure they feel from Yale men. Not all Yale men, but enough to shape what it's like to be a woman student at Yale. So this passage is about Shirley um, and actually some of the other women trying to do something about this. This is in regard to the sexual pressure from Yale men. The seniors were the worst, many women observed, the freshman guys were as befuddled as we were, said Patty Mintz, a white freshman from Massachusetts. Not so with the Yale seniors. There was so much pressure from the upper-class guys to bed down with the women, said Patty. Some of the seniors Patty knew would take the student directories and systematically cross out any girl they'd had sex with. So it was kind of feeling like you were being the opposite of predator, said Patty. What's that word? Prey. Not all men were like that at Yale, but there were enough who saw women as sexual targets to shape what it felt like to be a young woman at Yale. By early October, Shirley Daniels had grown concerned about Yale's sexual climate, too. Shirley felt the pressure herself, but she was a sophomore. She had a year's worth of experience with college men. It was the 25 black women freshmen that Shirley and some of the other black women sophomores and juniors worried about. 
they decided to call a meeting of all 40 black women students at Yale so that they could talk together about relationships. The freshman girls should understand that when the question of sex arose, they were allowed to say no. The black women met once or twice, but after that, the freshman girls stopped coming. When Shirley ran into them at the Afro-Am house and asked why, the answer was always the same. My boyfriend doesn't want me coming to a woman's thing. Shirley never imagined she would meet this kind of resistance, but the act of getting the women students together turned out to be far more radical than she realized. In those days, Shirley said, women didn't meet. They didn't talk. They didn't support each other. The meeting stopped. The pressure from the men continued. And the black women students went back to managing the overtures on their own. Now, that story does not have the ending that we would want it to have, but I don't want to give you the impression that all the change at Yale went easily. Some of the challenges are still challenges today. And while Shirley is incredibly successful in many of the things she undertakes, this was one that never really worked out while she was there. Now, the last story I'm going to tell before we pause for questions is a story about a guy. Because as I said before, Many men at Yale do step, out, uh, uh, step up as allies to women, and while what villains there are in this story are indeed all men, so too are many of the heroes. This story is actually about a guy who was not all that powerful at Yale, an assistant professor named Keith Thompson, but Keith Thompson was on the admissions committee. Now, for that first group of women, Yale's decision to go co-ed had been so last-minute that decision of who got in and who did not was left to just two administrators who would carry home boxes of applications through the New Haven winter to their homes each night and read through them in their living room. But for that second group of women, there was enough time, and the women are brought into the regular admissions process at Yale. Now, that process began, as you'd expect, in the fall with interviews and the collection of applications but it was March when the decisions were made. And if you were one of the 30 faculty or Yale staff who were on that admissions committee, March was a grueling month. That committee met from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., Monday through Friday, six hours on Saturday and three hours on Sunday. And by March 26th, they'd been at it almost three weeks. And because this is Yale, this is a little bit of what their decision sounded like. Admit, reject, 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 reject. Admit, reject, 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 reject. But that was for the men. For the women, because of that gender quota, the rejects came twice as often. Admit, reject, 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 reject. After three weeks of this, Keith Thompson had had enough, and he wrote Yale President Kingman Brewster decrying this discrimination against women. And you need to understand this as an act of courage, because Keith Thompson did not have tenure, and while the tenured professors on that committee, whose jobs were protected, stayed silent, it was Keith Thompson who spoke out. He had a modest proposal. What if we take 100 of those slots that are currently reserved for men and make them available to women, Thompson wrote Brewster. Otherwise, the admissions committee will be forced to turn away large numbers of exceptionally qualified young women while accepting some men who are relatively less impressive. Brewster read Thompson's letter and two others from the admissions committee that came in support of it, and then he did nothing the gender quota remained in place. But Keith Thompson would write again, the next time joined by four other members of the admissions committee, and that next time, his letter made a difference. So thank you. That's three stories. Over to you if you've got any questions or even just things you're curious about. I'm happy to, you know, answer most anything. And we can bring the microphone to you. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Tracy. Could you be uh, specific as to how the faculty um, acted towards the women? Yeah, that's a great... We're talking about academic. Yeah, that's it. Approached it. Be very specific, if you could. 
Okay, I'll, I'll try to be as specific as I can. I, and, and I will say to start, the, the faculty does not operate monolithically towards the women. And some of those faculty in particular had never left Yale. They'd been there to all-male Yale as students and continued in all-male, pretty much all-male Yale graduate school and stayed on as professors. So they'd lived and chosen to live in a, in a fairly um, insular all-male world. And others increasingly in this era coming in from this, uh, the best public uh, state universities, which are co-ed, and Yale seems pretty weird to them. Um, as a group, the faculty uh, is the first one actually to propose this idea that the admission of women should not reduce the number of men. And so that's where that initial idea comes from. Women should be admitted. They're one of the first to say that, but not at the expense of reducing the number of male leaders. Um, the faculty does vote 201 in favor of coeducation. Uh, but the. Um, once the women get there, the faculty is totally silent on this issue of the gender quota. They, they make other political pronunciations, what you might think of as political pronunciations at this time, but nothing about the gender quota on women. Um, some of the women students find really wonderful mentors among the Yale faculty. So Kit McClure, who's another woman I follow, she's a real feminist. She's a, she was going to consciousness-raising groups when she was in high school. And she has this idea, she's also a scientist and a musician, that um, what she wants to do is figure out a way for women to have babies by fusing cells so they don't have to have anything to do with men at all. <laughs> and she goes to Edgar Bell, who's a very prominent biologist at Yale. He'd been even temporary um, uh, interim dean of Yale College and proposes this idea to her and Bell goes with it. He supports her. He sets her up in a chemistry lab in Klein Biotower. He provides her with African toads, which apparently are really easy to pull eggs from, um, and eventually introduces her to a woman scientist at the Rockefeller Center. So that's one extreme and, and not the only example of how uh, Yale male faculty support these women. Um, but on the other extreme... Uh, there, uh, the, the stories I hear, the stories I've heard, the stories I've recorded about sexual harassment often come from Yale's faculty members. So, for example, there was a student from uh, Colorado, very small town in Colorado, who comes to Yale as a freshman that first year. She wants to be an art major. And in her first semester, her professor says to her, I'll, Yale did not have letter grades at those year, in those years. I'll, I'll give you an honors if you sleep with me and just a pass, which is the equivalent of a C, if you don't. She said no. And he gave her the pass, the C, which was the reason she graduated cum laude instead of magna cum laude. And um, the reason she decided to drop the art major because she would knew she would have to have this professor again. And that's not an unusual, unfortunately, situation at this time. But no one talks about it. The word sexual harassment hasn't even, that phrase hasn't even been invented yet. So I, I guess to your question, there is a wide range. Wonderful people, not so wonderful people. Any other questions? I see the microphones wandering. Andy, can yeah. you put in context how many women professors there were at the time? Because I think that's an interesting point you made in your book. And then oh. the second thing is I'm wondering about your own experience and if you encountered any of the prejudices and the bigotry that these women did when they were there. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Kelly. Um, so Yale's tenured faculty in 1969 has 407 tenured faculty members. Three of them are women. Uh, in the second year, one of them dies. So the second year of co-education, there's two tenured women faculty. In the third year, there's two tenured women faculty. And finally, in the fourth year, it skyrockets to three women faculty. So there's almost no tenured women at Yale. And most students, including the men, which I think is a really important point, go through Yale never having had a, a woman professor. So my own experience, I arrived eight years after these first women students, and by that time, the quota on um, Yale women had been lifted. My, two of my college roommates are here tonight, and, and you can tell a little how Yale had advanced because they're both guys. And so Neil and Scott and I were talking about this at my mother's house this afternoon. I, I think for us, there was no sense of being, and for me, there was no sense of being outnumbered among the women students, but there was a very clear sense 
that I only had three women faculty members, my entire teachers my entire time at Yale. And because I was on the Yale Daily News, which was one of the most prestigious and therefore one of the most male of Yale's organizations, I was very aware when I was on there that I was the woman in a men's organization. And even when I became the first woman editor of the Yale Daily News. There were only, of a Yale Daily News board of about 15 editors, there were only three other women. Two of them were the arts editors, the girl job, right? And one of them was an editorial editor. Um, so I, we felt very much like there weren't many of us, and we were the women in, in the men's organization. So um, you know, there was, uh, I was not aware at the time of any sexual harassment or sexual assault, and I think that's how it worked. It was very, uh, people didn't talk about it because the women often thought it was their fault, and I actually even found out that I was recruited to Yale mistakenly as a field hockey player. I really was not very good. Um, but my coach was named in a sexual harassment suit filed by Yale students, and I had no idea that that was going on. So, so that part of it was invisible to me. Good evening. Thank you for being here this evening. I think your message is important for so many people to hear on so many generational levels. At about the time that this was all going on at Yale, I was in a large private Eastern University that was about 50% female. And I'm wondering what the ratio was men to women in that first class, and how did Yale come up with that magic number? Um, so the thank you. Yeah, um, the the term first class is a, a little bit hard to say because they come into three classes that year: freshmen, sophomores, and juniors. Um, but the overall the ratio is seven to one. Uh, it's thirteen percent women. But you raise a good point because I. Well, most of, certainly most of the state universities and, and most of the colleges in this country are co-ed by 1969. I think that line between all-male and co-ed is a little more blurry than we might think it is. So Yale's faculty, as we've noted, is less than 1% women at this time. But UC Berkeley has been co-ed since 1875, and its faculty is 2% women. And the University of Con uh, Wisconsin, also co-ed since the 1870s, its faculty is 4% women. So it's not that the um, co-ed schools are doing great and the formerly all-male schools are the, are the bad guys. It's a, a little bit fuzzy. MIT, for example, technically co-ed since 1871, looks great on paper. They did not build their first dorm for women students until 1963, when one of those first women um, graduates of MIT donated the money. And in 1969, when Yale goes co-ed, MIT is co-ed, too. It's 5% women. So, um, you know, the, the, there's a, it's not great for women, really, at many colleges. Oh, and even the women's colleges, I mean, Goucher had male colleges all, you know, almost all through this period. Smith had a male, um, uh, male president. So uh, there's a lot of discrimination going on regardless of, of the gender ratio at the school. Hello. Um, you showed us a, a pretty typical experience, college experience, for most of us here in, this, um, in, the, in the room over the last decades. But we know that the coming uh, 21st century model is going to put more and more of all of our universities online, and brick-and-mortar uh, universities, uh, colleges, are going to be a burden to, to fund and whatnot. Now, I don't know what will happen with Yale, but if that does happen, uh, how will a women cohort uh, operate in what will be a um, cyber kind of a, a college community? I don't know if you all heard the question. It's really a question about the future of college. If the brick-and-mortar college, and let me make sure I'm rephrasing this correctly, ends and we turn solely to online colleges, how does that affect women? Boy, I've never thought about that, I have to say. Um, and, and I will say my expertise is primarily as a historian of higher education. I think, you know, on, on that, I don't think... Uh, 
I'd be surprised if that happens, because in, in, at least in terms of these elite colleges, because what these colleges sell um, is the, uh, in, in addition to the wonderful education and the resources that you have to be there to use, the best, one of the best gyms in the world, the best music hall, is those connections with other incredibly bright, talented students and the and the connections to get to the next place, and you can't get that online. So we may see this online um, more, but I, I don't think we're going to use that, lose that. And I, to me, the question there was less one of gender than one of class and, and what type of schools you have access to and what type of schools you do not. Um, and, and that's where we sometimes still see our education system instead of um, reducing class gaps in this country actually making them bigger sometimes. Hi. Hi. Um, were the women, the first women at, at Yale, aware, especially in the second and third years that they were there, of the women's movement nationally? Oh, that's a great question. So, um, you know, the women's movement is, is uh, sort of growing at the same time of those, it really coincides with those early years of Yale. And it depends, again, which women you're talking about. So at the end of the, uh, in March of that very first year at Yale, there is a group of women who form the first women's group at Yale for undergraduates. It's called the Yale Sisterhood. And those girls in the sisterhood who I spent a lot of time talking to as many of them as possible are incredibly influenced by the women's movement, particularly in that second year when the seminal works of the women's movement start coming out, Kate Millett's um, work in particular, or uh, Robin Morgan's Sisterhood is Powerful. And for those women, they can describe to me where they were when they first read sexual politics, the, the exact bench on the courtyard where it just blew their mind, this whole new way of seeing things. And I, I don't know if you noticed in the film, there was, uh, in the video, there's a picture of um, uh, four women sort of sitting at a, at a podium. That's a um, women's uh, conference. It's called the Free Women Conference that Yale women organized at the end of that first year of co-education, that's actually Kate Millett and Naomi Weinstein who come and talk to Yale. Kate Millett is there um, before her dissertation at Columbia has even been published. So for those women, I think the, the women's movement is very salient, and they, with graduate students, file a sex discrimination complaint against Yale and bring in HEW, it's a federal agency that's not there anymore, to investigate Yale for sex discrimination. And so that's, I think, really part of the larger women's movement. On the other hand, um, you know, I think the women's movement happens at different times for different people. And so some women will talk about it happening to them personally after they graduate at Yale. And there was one woman in particular who I was really struck by who said, you know, those women in the Yale sisterhood, they would do things like go to the movies together without being asked by a guy to go on a date, which just seemed radical. And, and for many women, they would stay home on a Saturday night if a guy hadn't asked them out on a date. But what she said is, you know, those women who we saw as really extreme and radical at that time, going to a movie with a bunch of women without guys along um, really helped blaze the way for the rest of us. So, thank you. Uh, I wonder if you might address uh, alumni resistance. I always felt that uh, President Brewster's resistance had a lot to do with that. And I can remember in 64 when Martin Luther King uh, got his honorary doctorate he got a standing ovation, but there was a lot of booing in, in the audience. It seemed to me that the alumni was uh, a lot uh, behind some of that booing. Um, Brewster does uh, face um, a lot of alumni uh, opposition, particularly on his stands on race. Uh, and, and Kurt actually would know about this because Brewster talked to him about it. Uh, and in particular, uh, during May Day in May 1970, Brewster makes a statement that he thinks that uh, a black revolutionary can't get a fair trial in this country. It's on the, in the New York Times the next day, and in, very shortly thereafter, Vice President Agnew is calling for Brewster to resign. So he, he gets a lot of pushback from 
Yale alum, from some Yale alumni on his positions on race and on his opening up of admissions to students who come from public high schools, because what that means is the traditional Yale legacies aren't getting in as often. Um, but I, I, I think it's a bit of a myth that he was under pressure from Yale alumni on this question of women, in part for the obvious fact that Yale alumni had daughters too, and many of them were thrilled to have their daughters go to Yale, including um, a, a couple very prominent ones who are on the board of trustees. Brewster talks a lot about the pressure from the anti-woman pressure from Yale alumni, and many Yale students believe that. But in a letter to the alumni contributions go up in the first year of coeducation and in the second. So that that fear that alumni will stop giving because they're women there is doesn't happen. Um, and you know, Brewster, th this decision to admit women happened so fast they never even asked the alumni. So it's not like the alumni said no and Yale went ahead. Yale never asked them. And he Brewster writes in the third year of coeducation a letter to the president of Amherst college who has written him saying, so should we go co-ed or not? And Brewster writes back saying, the alumni are fine. They're not a problem. Don't worry about them. So you can always find one or two crotchety guys who go on TV saying how terrible it is to have women. But as a group, Yale's alumni are su supportive of co-education, much more so than they are of the other changes at Yale. Thank you for doing this work. Um, Thank I'm you for being here. I'm curious about the graduate departments. I was at Princeton when the first, um, as a grad student, when the first undergraduate females arrived. And I'll never forget the epithets that the eating clubs shouted at them as they walked along. But our graduate department had zero female faculty, but half the grad students in the department were women. So I'm wondering how the path for women in graduate and professional schools has differed from undergraduates. So Yale has had women in its graduate schools for 150 years, 100 years longer than the undergraduates. But overall, they were just 10% women in those graduate schools in 1969. And they're spread all over the campus, you know, from the nursing school on one side of the highway up to the, is this still working, up to the divinity school on the other end. Um, and those graduate school women face incredible discrimination at Yale before those women undergraduates arrive. For example, Yale has the largest gym in the world, but the women weren't allowed to enter, the women graduate students. It was men only. And the prescriptions at Yale, I love this, um, were pre-printed at the time with Mr., as if the women graduate students would never get sick or, or not want to go. So um, the women graduate students, they actually lead a lot of the um, outreach to the federal government on the sex discrimination charge because they're so angry. And I interviewed a couple of them. They also say, you know, we were at the bottom of the totem pole. We were invisible at Yale. And so we could almost do what we wanted because they almost didn't know we were there. So, you know, they face a lot more discrimination. Um, I think we've got time for just one more question. I'm just looking at the time here, and then I'll end with one last story. Yeah. My question is about the cover of your book. Can you talk a little bit about the photograph and the title? Sure. Um, okay, so you're looking at that. Uh, we wanted to get across the idea of all-male Yale. So at the top here is the 1916 Yale cheerleading squad. Of course, it was all-male at that time. And actually, this cheerleader is Prescott Bush, George W. Bush's grandpa. So the top is um, the sort of all-male Yale, and then we wanted to get across the idea, A, that it was the 1960s, as you saw from the slides, a lot of miniskirts at that time, um, but of the transition to women. I, it was also important to me that the book covers show the racial diversity of the women at that time, and so the only historically accurate photo we could find, because white women and black women, for the most part, um, sort of ran in different circles at Yale at the time. Uh, was, that's the class of 1972 nursing school. The title, I love the title, and I didn't think of it myself, so I can say that. And I, I like it for two reasons. I like it because it's historically correct. Yale actually felt it needed women because it was losing its top applicants to Harvard. And when it interviewed uh, those guys who turned Yale down, they said, well, 
it's because a Harvard guy can invite the Radcliffe woman sitting next to him out on a date, but a Yale man has to drive two hours to Vassar or Smith to find a girlfriend. So there was a weird class element in that too. But I think it's true today. I mean, Yale's faculty today remains, the tenured faculty is just 26% women at Yale. Yale's never had a woman professor. And so it's a phrase that remains true today. And I like it because I think of it sort of as a fill in the blank. You know, Yale needs women, but so does Congress, and so does the White House, and so do many institutions in this country. Um, the, uh, The question I get sometimes on the bottom is, why did I say how the first group of girls, that that word girls really strikes a button on some people. And I, you know, I have a note at the beginning of the book, this is before the women's movement really takes off. And that's what they called themselves. And that's what they were called. And so I felt like, as a historian, I'm not going to put words in their mouth and not call them girls, because many of them emphasized in their interviews with me that that's how they saw themselves. And I also like that that term girls reminds us how young they were when they were asked to take this on. So that's your, your primer on the cover. Uh, so one final story. And for this, I'm going to take you back to February 1970. So we're still in this first year of coeducation at Yale. A thousand business-suited alumni had gathered in the imposing university dining hall for a white tablecloth lunch. It was the annual winter alumni gathering. Sliced roast beef would be served. Yale President Brewster would speak. Awards would be given. But before Brewster could begin his remarks, 40 freshman girls broke in through a side door and began marching up and down along those tables with signs that they'd hastily made the night before. End women's oppression. Women, up from under. It was a very unyale thing to do, said a graduate student later. Now, Kit McClure, who I told you a little bit about before, she's the scientist with the African toad experiments, was in this group, but she had never done anything like this before. And when I talked to her about it, what she said to me was, you know, it was scary to be in that room full of important men, knowing you weren't supposed to be there. Kit's classmate, Margaret Kuhn, who came from a public high school in Pennsylvania, so small that there had been only 67 students in her graduating class, and as the girls had planned, walked up to the podium, turned to President Brewster, and asked him for the mic. Brewster was a little surprised, but he was a very gracious man, and he was not about to get in a tug-of-war with Margaret Kuhn in front of those thousand alumni, so he hands her the mic. And Margaret, from this tiny high school in Pennsylvania, she was 18 years old, steps up before that large audience of Yale alumni and begins to speak. There are not enough of us, she told the stunned crowd, to accept 230 women while admitting 1,000 male leaders is not just sex discrimination, but bad education. Some of the audience laughed as Margaret spoke, President Brewster chuckled. When she was done, the girls left as quickly as they had come in, and it was time for President Brewster to speak. He delivered his prepared remarks on the economics of running Yale, but he spoke as well of the women, protesters whom he called a much too small band of women undergraduates to pay much attention to. But if this was the last time Kingman Brewster thought he was going to hear from Yale women he was mistaken. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Perkins, for your vital book. Thank you, Kurt Schmoke, for your wonderful introduction. Thank you, David Ware, and to Church of the Redeemer for always being wonderful partners. Um, I'm Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I just wanted to say thank you all for spending your evening with us.
podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.